for uh, for those of us who've uh, who've lived long enough and been uh, uh, been a follower of, uh, of Jesus for long enough, it's it's pretty safe to say I think that that at some point uh, in our discipleship journey, God has done something or not done something that we didn't understand. Right? I mean, it. it, it probably doesn't take all that long in a, in a person's discipleship journey to experience something like that. Uh, for me, the, the first time that I can remember grappling uh, with that was as a young teenager. Uh, growing up in, uh, in our church, there was, a, there was a man in our church named Donnie, Donnie Nyberg. Um, and uh, if I remember correctly, I think he was I think he was in his in his 40s, and he was diagnosed with cancer. And um, uh, by now, I'm starting to get a little fuzzy on the on the specific details of, of that whole situation. But there are some things that I remember very clearly uh, about all of that. I, I remember clearly that Donnie fought hard against his cancer uh, that he experienced. Um, I, I remember clearly that our church prayed hard as he walked that path. And I remember clearly that Donnie died from his cancer. And, and, and that was the first time in my young life, that was the, the, the point in my life that, that my faith was starting to become my own. Again, as I said, I was a young teenager. And it was really the first time where, where God's activity what I viewed as a lack of activity in that instance, uh, it just didn't make sense to me. And, and there's been other times since then, for sure. But that was the first. For me, that was the first time that uh, I was really grappling with that. And I was left pondering that sometimes debilitating question, why? Why? I mean, I looked at what, what was going on. Uh, why? And, and now that it's been 20-some years later, and, and I've grown, and I've matured, and I've taken Bible classes, and ministry classes, and I've been a pastor for 15 years, I still don't know why. <laughs> I still don't know why. I, I, I don't. I, the, I, one thing I've learned in that time, uh, I'm not the only person who's ever asked that question, asked why. Uh, as I've already said, if, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, you've probably asked that question also um, about the different situation. Uh, this morning, is, uh, as we go through, uh, continue through Luke, we're going to look at a couple of people in, in chapter 7 who asked why. And I think one of the people might be kind of a surprise to us. Um, so... So as we jump into our text for today, I, I do want to say right off the bat that we will not be neatly and concisely answering that question this morning of why. Um, I just don't have the understanding needed to, to give that kind of an answer. I don't think I'm ever going to have that in this life. Um, it doesn't mean that we're going to waste our time this morning. I don't think that. I, I think that as we as we permit ourselves to give voice to those questions, see where others have wrestled with similar questions, I think we'll find that 
God can be trusted even in the midst of those questions. So, so let's, uh, let's take this journey together. Uh, go ahead and open uh, your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7. That's where we will be this morning. And as we start off, we're, we're, we're going to first be confronted with two incredible miracles uh, that Jesus performed. And, and there's been miracles to this point in Luke's gospel. Uh, if you remember, he's cast out demons, he's healed the sick, there was that gigantic catch of fish uh, with Peter, uh, Jesus has cleansed a leper, he's healed a paralytic, he's healed a withered hand, so, so there's plenty of miracles that we've seen already. Um, but the two additional ones that we're going to see in the first part of Luke chapter 7, I think they're on a whole other level, if I can phrase it that way. Um, so let's look at these together. Let's look at the first miracle. This was performed for the servant of a Roman centurion. So Luke chapter 7, and I'm starting in verse 1. It says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion and a servant, uh, excuse me, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So, uh, word about Jesus is getting around. It's getting around. And it wasn't just the regular Jewish people or the, the religious leaders who'd heard about Jesus. A Roman soldier had as well. And, and he didn't just hear about Jesus. Apparently, he believed what he'd heard also. And so he, and so he had this sick servant, and he so valued this servant that he sent some Jewish elders to Jesus requesting that, that uh, he heal his servant. And I think it's interesting, you know, these elders did what, what many of us probably would do when we come before Jesus on behalf of someone else needing a miracle. We tout the worthiness of the person that's suffering, right? I mean, what's he say? Like, you know, Jesus... Uh, uh, he, he's worthy to have you do this. He loves our nation. He built the synagogue for us. Like, Jesus, this is a miracle you ought to perform. This is one worth doing. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of, I found it ironic, at least, when the centurion sends his friends a little bit later on with his own words, it's like, no, I'm not worthy. <laughs> I'm not worthy to even have you come in my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. But, so when Jesus finally speaks in this story, he doesn't comment on either the centurion's worthiness or his unworthiness. He just, he just comments on his faith. You know, the, the centurion's faith stood out to Jesus. And after highlighting his faith to the crowd around him, he heals his servant without even showing up at his house. Just says the word, 
I mean, Jesus is so powerful that he doesn't even need to be present to perform a miracle. I mean, that's something new that hasn't happened to this point in Luke's gospel. This is healing from a distance. But Jesus wasn't done yet. Look at what happens next in verse 11. We get the second miracle. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So how do you top a long-distance healing of a centurion servant? You raise a man from the dead. Uh, this is one of the three times in the Gospels where Jesus raises somebody from the dead. And, and chronologically, this is the first one. So according to the Gospels, this is something new as well, something that we haven't seen Jesus do to this point. And while the faith of the centurion was highlighted in the, the first miracle, we don't really know anything about this man except that he was an only son and his mom was a widow. That, that's all we know. We don't know anything about his faith, his, his mom's faith. And, you know, in that period of time, uh, a woman without a husband was in a very desperate situation. And a woman without a husband or a son was in a most desperate situation. And in response to her situation, we're told that Jesus had compassion on her. And, and out of his compassion for her, he raised her son back to life. And, you know, th this, <laughs> you know, you, you look at the response in verse 16, fear seized them all. I mean, it, it, was, it was so truly incredible that it scared those who were present. And I, if I was there, I think I'd be a little frightened by that as well. I mean, that, man, fear seized them, but yet, the news of the event also spread like wildfire, uh, wildfire through the area, which makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't it? I mean, uh, this is a truly incredible event, which spoke of the awesome power of Jesus, power that we've been singing about this morning. And it's maybe about this time that, that we ponder these two stories and we shift our thinking to our own situation current situation or maybe a past situation. Jesus, if you, could, if you could heal the servant without even being there, then why aren't you fill in the blank? Jesus, if you, could, if you could raise that man from the dead, then why didn't you fill in the blank? And, you know, I, I think those are natural questions to ask. And as I said, you, know, you and I aren't the only ones to have asked those questions. Uh, as verse 17 said, the news of those things spread all over the country. That news even made its way to a place called Machaerus on the east side of the Dead Sea. 
And Atmacharis was a, a fortress palace that belonged to King Herod, kind of a famous palace. And in this fortress palace, there was an imprisoned individual named John the Baptist. Now, in Luke's gospel, the last thing we knew about John the Baptist from Luke chapter 3 was that Herod arrested him and locked him up in prison. And he's still there. He's still there in this fortress prison. Now he comes back into the picture at this point in the gospel. So let's try to put ourselves in John's place in Luke chapter 7. He'd been, you know, he'd been taken away, he'd been removed from Judea, taken to this jail cell in the fortress of King Herod, where he's been held captive. Uh, it's probably safe to assume that it's closer to a maximum security situation than like a minimum security one. So uh, he's probably sitting in his cell day after day, looking at the same walls for hours on end, plenty of time to think. Right? Probably thinking back about the sermons he preached, the proclamations that he had made about the Messiah and the power of the Messiah and the justice that the Messiah would bring. And then word comes to him about Jesus utilizing that power, healing over distances, bringing someone back from the dead. And it surely would have made John wonder, look around at his situation and say, what about me? Here I am. I mean, if Jesus possesses that kind of power, what am I doing sitting in this jail cell? Why am I not at least out there proclaiming this message, pointing people to him? And listen to what Luke went on to record in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So all these miracles that have been taking place. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who was to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, I, I've read some Bible commentators who would say that John's question to Jesus... Are you the one who's to come, or should we be looking for someone else? That that question was actually for the sake of John's disciples. And so they, they, they say that John wanted his own disciples to hear Jesus answer that question from his own mouth. So in other words, you know, I, I could tell my disciples, John would say, I could tell my disciples that, but I really want them to hear it from Jesus. I, I don't buy that interpretation. I, I, personally, I think think it ignores the fact that Jesus responded to the question with a message for John. And, and it ignores the fact that those disciples left Jesus and went back to John and gave him the answer to the question. And, and I think the reason we might try to float that interpretation is because 
If we assume that John himself is asking that question, if John himself is saying, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Then, wow, now all of a sudden, is John's faith wavering? Like, what's going on there? This is John the Baptist. How can he ask that kind of a question? And that can be a bit uncomfortable, right? Because John is asking a raw, vulnerable question there. And, and we might become a bit uncomfortable because deep down we can wonder the same thing, right? And if that's what John is doing, and I see that in myself sometimes, then boy, that can, that can just make me feel uncomfortable, feel uneasy. Uh, th- th- there's, I think there's an incredible vulnerability in John's question for Jesus. He doesn't say it, but I think he's saying, Jesus, I, I, I've heard about your power. Why am I still sitting here in prison? What is going on? And, and there's that vulnerability within ourselves, I think, as well, when, when we give voice to that same kind of question. Like, Jesus, seeing you do this, I mean, we, we, Jesus, we read about these stories, the miraculous power uh, that's proclaimed to us in the Bible, or we hear firsthand accounts today of, of Jesus' miraculous healing power, but, but then we fail to see that displayed in a way which addresses our own suffering in a specific way, and the question just can begin to gnaw at us. I mean, Jesus, are you really the Messiah, or, or should I be looking for someone else or something else? If you're really the Messiah, then why, why didn't this happen, or why didn't that happen? And, uh, you know, we're not told what John's reaction was to Jesus' answer. I so wish we were, but we're just not told. We're not told what his reaction was. I, I think if I were in John's shoes and, and, the disi- and John's disciples came back and reported that message to me in that position, I think Jesus' response would have been a little comforting, but also confusing at the same time. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus, he, he performed more miracles in front of John's two disciples and then tells them to go back and confirm that, that yes, everything you've been hearing about me is true. Healing over a distance, raising the dead, you know, sight to the blind, all of that. It's all true, yes. But, but perhaps infuriatingly absent from, John's respo- from Jesus' response is any type of recognition of John's situation at least a verbal recognition. Uh, I mean, if John was hoping that Jesus would tip his hand about some upcoming miracle regarding his own release from prison, he doesn't get it. I mean, he gets nothing in that regard. Jesus has been proclaimed as the one who sets captives free earlier in Luke, and Jesus doesn't even say anything about that. Uh, You know, all John got was this odd-sounding beatitude about not being offended by Jesus. Doesn't that seem strange at the end of all that? You know, go report all the miracles, all the things you've seen, and, and oh yeah, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Uh, I mean, Jesus essentially told John, everything you've heard about me is true. And even though my power is not being used in the way you might think it should be or, or hope it will be, continue to have faith in me. Continue to have faith in me. I would, comforting and confusing all at the same time. That, that's, that's what I feel like I would be in that situation. You know, comforting when considering that Jesus' power is real and it is active, but yet confusing when considering why that power is not 
setting me free from prison. And I, I, I mean, I would say it doesn't, it doesn't take much for us to empathize with John in this situation, does it? I mean, maybe not specifically sitting in prison, but, but empathizing with the question that he's asking and, and the emotions that he's feeling in the midst of that. And, and John didn't, he didn't, really didn't get an answer to the question beneath his question. He, he outwardly asked if Jesus was the one, the Messiah, and, and Jesus answered yes, that he was. But I think John also wanted to know why he's still sitting there. And, and Jesus, who had read people's thoughts before and who was going to do so again shortly, didn't answer John's unanswered question, but yet I think obvious question. And I, you know, I'd, I'd say the closest answer that Jesus gives comes later in the passage. So after John's two disciples departed, Jesus goes on and he speaks to the crowd about John. And because and, I, think, I think if you're in the crowd there that day following Jesus, you probably know who John the Baptist is. And if John the Baptist sends this question, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? I mean, if I was in the crowd, I'd be wondering, what's going on with John? Like, it, you know, wow, wow, like, man, that's a, that's a heavy question for John to be asking. So I think maybe that there's some, some wondering there. And Jesus went on to assure them that, yes, John is indeed this promised Elijah-type prophet that was coming before the Messiah. And he even said that no one born among women was greater than John. I mean, that's a statement. <laughs> Nobody born among women is greater than John. And then Jesus ends that interaction with the crowd by saying this, and he's talking about both John and himself at this point. So if you look at verse 31, Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So, so what Jesus is saying is that the people are like children in the marketplace who, who get upset when others won't join in and play their games with them. Uh, so when the children are playing happy music, the people aren't dancing. Or, or when the children are playing a sad dirge, the people aren't mourning. They're not responding how they want them to respond, basically. What John the Baptist's ministry showed, uh, or how his ministry showed itself, was in one way, and the people didn't agree with it. Right? I mean, what's Jesus say? Well, he didn't eat bread, didn't drink wine, and, and the people are like, well, he's got a demon. Like, that's not right. Jesus' ministry shows itself in a different way, and the people don't agree with it either. So Jesus is saying, we're both ministering, and yet, yet you're not agreeing with either one of us. You have a problem with what we're both doing. And basically what he's saying is Jesus, uh, John, and himself— couldn't be controlled by others, couldn't be controlled by the expectations of others. Yet, they're both acting wisely. I mean, he ends in verse 35 and says, wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, they're both acting wisely and, and 
the wisdom with which they're using is going to be plainly seen based on the outcomes. You know, what happens in response to their ministries is, is going to show that they were acting wisely. And, and I would say this, this reminds me of, of what I think are the truly humbling words that God spoke to his people through the prophet Isaiah. Um, in, in Isaiah chapter 55, this is, this is what God says. Isaiah 55 verse 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's, uh, that's humbling to admit, isn't it? That's difficult, I think, to admit as well. You know, to agree with that statement means that I recognize that God is under no obligation to answer my why questions, to act how I think he should act. Um, John found his why question unanswered, I think. I can find myself in that same boat as John, wondering, Jesus, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Um, and even if God would answer why, his thoughts are so far above my own that I probably still wouldn't grasp it, if I'm being honest about it. Like, I, I, I probably wouldn't get the full picture. My, my own ideas, my own understanding of, of, of God's power can be quite limited in scope. I mean, and, and I would say this is even the case as I was reading this very chapter in Luke's gospel. When I was thinking about those two miracles Jesus did at the beginning, and then John's question and how John wasn't seeing the miracle that he wanted performed, I, I, I was so focused on that that I, I didn't even recognize the third miracle that was taking place in this chapter, or the one that took place at the beginning of chapter 8 for that matter. So look what, look what Luke goes on to record, uh, picking it up in verse 36. So he says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, and we've got to picture this. He's looking at the woman, but he's still talking to the Pharisee. So let's try and picture that. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She gave me no kiss, but from the time, uh, excuse me, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to, ki ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, speaking to her, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When Jesus speaks to this woman and says, your sins are forgiven, that is no less a miracle than the healing of the centurion's servant or, or the, the raising of the widow's son from the dead. Uh, I mean, when verse 37 doesn't name this woman but simply, simply refers to her as a woman of the city who was a sinner, uh, that infers that she's probably pretty notorious for her sins. People around town knew who she was. You have to say her name. They knew who she was. And yet, she humbled herself, came before Jesus in an attitude of submission and worship, and she found Jesus forgiving her sins and sending her off in peace. And I'm certain she didn't enter the Pharisee's house with peace. I'm certain of that. It's actually shocking that she was even able to get in there without someone stopping her at the door. But when she departed from the house, she had the peace of God upon her. She had been forgiven of her sins. What a miracle. I mean, albeit of a different sort, right? It's different than that long-distance healing or raising from the dead, but yet a miracle nonetheless. And Simon the Pharisee had his own why question. I mean, John the Baptist wondered why Jesus didn't do something. Simon the Pharisee wondered why Jesus did do something. Why forgive this woman, this, this notorious sinner? As far as Simon was concerned, Jesus should have just sent her away the moment she entered the room. But he didn't. He didn't send her away. He loved her and he forgave her. And, and I feel confident saying he transformed her life. And, and at the beginning of chapter 8, then, you know, Jesus' treatment of, of women that, that's told in the first three verses there, that, that's, that's miraculous as well. And in a culture where, where having women as part of your ministry would have been seen as shameful or, or scandalous, Jesus chose to both show love and be loved by women. That's a miraculous thing as well, especially in that time period. And so I would say just as people grappled with Jesus' inactivity, they grappled with his activity as well. They asked why he didn't do things. They asked why he did do other things. And, and, and so as I take a step back and, and just kind of reflect on this entire section of, of Luke's gospel, I, I, I find myself focusing really on two main takeaways. And, and, and so, first, even though I have a way I think Jesus should, should act or a way that I want him to act, I do not control him. I, I don't. I, I don't control him. I could be just like the kids in that marketplace that are upset when people aren't responding, they're not dancing, or they're not mourning like they're supposed to. I can be just like that. Uh, God is God, and I'm not. 
I mean, there's really no other way to say it. As much as I think I know what is best in a given situation, I don't. I, I, I can point a finger at God, I can tell him he made the wrong decision, but, but in truth, I just don't know. I just don't know how my desired scenario would have played out. I, I don't know. It doesn't, that doesn't mean I can't be honest with God. It, 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 you know, like John the Baptist, I think, I think it is fair to come to God in a transparent way. I mean, God already knows my thoughts anyway. It's not like, it's not like I would surprise him. It's not like John the Baptist surprised him with his question. It's not like Simon surprised him with his question. God knows what we're thinking. He's big enough to handle my questions. He's big enough to handle the emotions that I'm, that I'm feeling with those questions. And, and, and in coming to God and in asking those questions, I, I, I don't want to be offended by God when his actions don't match my desires. I think that's what Jesus was saying to, to John. Blessed is the one who's not offended by him. You know, I, I, I want to continue to trust God, continue to hope in him, even when the path forward is shrouded, even when my understanding of it isn't, isn't as clear as I want it to be. You know, I, I want to rest in God's promises, knowing that, that wisdom is justified by her children, like, like he says, knowing that God's ways and God's purposes will eventually show themselves to be sufficient. I think that's my first takeaway from from this section here. And and I think the second takeaway for me is that, that maybe I too often miss miracles just because I have too narrow of a view of what a miracle is. You know, I'm easy to spot the first two in this section, but a little slower to see the third one with the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the, the fact that I can stand before you today as a sinner, loved by God, forgiven by God, redeemed by God, it's a genuine miracle. I mean, it is. The fact that I can find peace in God in the midst of this fallen world is a genuine miracle. Um, you know, when I, when I think back on the, the life of Donnie Nyberg, you know, and I question, why didn't God, why didn't you perform a miracle in his life, I've got to check myself a little bit, because God did perform a miracle in his life, and he did. Uh, maybe it wasn't the exact one that I prayed for and that others prayed for, that he himself prayed for, but God did take Donnie's sins upon himself, did give Donnie holiness in return, and, and the miraculous healing for which we prayed wasn't seen by us in this life, but it is no less real and no less complete as Donnie dwells right now in the presence of God, even as I'm speaking. And so, you know, when I don't see the one miracle, I have to make sure I'm not forgetting the way that God has worked. Uh, so, you know, I, why did or didn't God do what you and I wanted him to do in certain situations. I, I don't know. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to answer that question, and I meant it. I, I don't know why, but I do know, I do know God's loving. I do know God is powerful. I do know he's working in the world, and that he's working in our lives, and, and, 
I do know that his ways are above my own. And some days I don't like that reality more than others. But I know it to be true. I know his ways are above my own. So I, I think by God's grace, I can rest in and I can anticipate the eternal life to come when all will be revealed and when all will be made right for the rest of eternity. And, and th- that, that truth was coming up in, in the songs that we were singing earlier. That I mean, that's the power of God fully and completely seen when everything is put right once again. Again, I, 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 there's, there's things I desire here in this life but whether or not God works in that way, all will be made right. You can trust in that, rest in that, find hope and find peace in that. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's come before God because I think, we, I think we are only in that place by God's grace, by, by God's bringing us to that place in our lives. So let's, let's ask him to do that now. Father, we come before you as, as your children that uh, we believe who you are. We believe that you are loving, that you are powerful. And yet at the same time, we can wonder how you choose to, to work through that power and, and work in the midst of our lives. And there's times where it makes perfect sense to us, and there's other times where we really struggle with, with what you're doing. And God, I, first off, I thank you that, that we can come to you with that. Thank you even for John the Baptist's example, his willingness to voice his question to you. I pray that in our lives we would, we would find that same freedom to come to you. And in that, God, I pray that you would give us the grace to to continue to trust you and find peace in you and comfort in you, especially when the answer isn't quite what we had hoped or desired. We know your ways are above ours and your thoughts are above our own, and so give us the grace to rest in that. Not just to provide a nice, easy answer that makes us feel better, but, but to truly put, that, put our faith in that reality. God, I pray that, uh, that you'd continue to walk with us regardless of how our lives unfold or have unfolded to this point. We know you're here. We know you're with us. We know you're working. God, would you give us what we need? I think that's truly our prayer, that you would give us what we need day by day, not just to get through the day, but to rest in you, to trust in you, to grow deeper in our relationship with you. God, we thank you. Thank you for who you are. And even in the midst of what can be a lack of understanding from our point of view, we give you praise and we worship you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.